morning. We're talking about common causes. There are a lot of causes that divide Christians. And what we're looking at are common causes, causes that unite Christians. We're talking about communion and community and commission. Um, look last week. In Ephesians, Paul talks about the three priorities, the three imperatives or commands. He talks about being seated with Christ in the heavenly places, seated with God in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it talks about walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he says, stand against the schemes of the devil. And these are progressively through the course of the letter. And so first we have sit, and then we have walk, and then we have stand. And what we talked about last week is before we can stand together in spiritual conflict, we have to walk together. And before we walk together, we must sit together. Or to put it another way, before we are of one heart and can express community, we need to be of one mind and experience communion this way. Community is the fruit of communion. And that's what we find in the early church. It says in Acts 4, all the, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, or from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. The early church was of one mind and one heart. We don't know, we know some details about how the early church functioned. It says that, Paul writes, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. There were two places where Christians were instructed where they gathered, sometimes publicly in the temple courts. But then it says they were, they went, they were taught from house to house. And this is the kind of house that would have existed in Israel at the time. It wasn't just a single family dwelling. It were, there were rooms around a common courtyard. And so when you think of the early church meeting, think of something like this. And so if you look at the space, roughly, you know, we don't know exactly, but roughly the space in this room here or in the, the fireplace room. And so you could imagine how many people could fit in a space like that, maybe 50, 60, 30, 40, 50, 60. Uh, that's about the size of house churches at the time. So what would happen in a city that would be a number of gatherings such as these, two, three, or four, and the church would meet in houses and in temple courts. Um, the early church was, as we think about, this is where they met, but how did they function? A couple things. The early church was humble. Initially, those who put their faith in Christ, if you made that decision, you were stepping out of a lane that would allow you to be prosperous. You were essentially, in Israel at least, committing material suicide. 
by becoming a Christian because the place where you did a lot of business was the synagogue. That's where you rub shoulders. That's where social and and meetings, social meetings and business meetings were held. And if you became a Christian, then your participation or invitation to the synagogue was was not going to be uh, it was not going to be honored. Um, so what ended up happening, those who were discriminated against um, were the ones who flooded into the church, whether it be because of race, class, or gender, those who really weren't in the fast lane anyways. They were the ones that flooded into the church. The early church was comprised of lower classes without the slightest political or economic power. But although the early church was humble, the early church was loving. It says God gives grace to the humble. And that's something we find in the Old Testament and the New. It's a maxim that's true no matter which covenant, no matter which testament you're looking at. God gives grace to the humble. The humble are those who can't use what they have to get what they want. They don't have material or political power to be able to turn the hands of justice in their direction. They are the discriminated against. And yet, the early church then being comprised of the humble, these humble were loving. Uh, Generous voluntary gifts were brought, usually during worship, and these gifts made it possible to provide welfare for the poor, the sick, orphans and widows, those in prison, the needy, and the aged. This was one of the main reasons for the success of Christianity early on, is the way that they took care of everyone who was part of their house churches and past that who were needy in the community. And not only was the early church loving during this initial period where, frankly, it was early on in the church. There weren't that many, um, there was a lot of miracles. People were living, as we looked at in, in Acts, they, almost communally, and everybody thought this was a, was a pretty good deal. It looked really kind of nifty until the government started to persecute the church, and then it became a different deal. Difficult times came, persecutions and famines, and even some things that we are experiencing in our time, there were pandemics, a couple of them in the Roman Empire. Um, in the mid-2nd century, in about 165 AD, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. This was called different things. There was one way it was described as the plague of Galen. They estimate that a quarter to a third of the population of the Roman Empire was lost to this plague. Um, then, in a century later than that, another plague, known as the Plague of Cyprian, with that raged for 15 years as well, 15-year plagues. That one, at the height of it, uh, 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome. Pagan Rome was completely ill-prepared to help the sick, or deal with mass death. What the doctor said, quarantine and sequester those who have received the plague, and then people would stay away from them. Doctors would leave places where the plague was 
um, spreading, um, they evacuated cities. And this was where the church ended up showing its character. In stark contrast, the earliest Christians expended themselves in works of mercy that frankly dumbfounded the Romans. For them, God loved humanity. God loved people. And in order to love God back, one had to love others. And that's the way they functioned. They saw this as an opportunity to extend themselves in love for those nobody else was going to take care of and nobody else was going to love. Christians risked their lives for one another by simple deeds of washing the sick, offering water and food, and consoling the dying. I read a a statistic that, I forget exactly how it goes, um, they could be, by caring for um, those who were infirmed, save about 20% of them. So there would be tens, thousands of individuals who would have been cared for by Christians, would have been consoled, would have been fed. And that was kind of how the church grew. Can you imagine being left alone and then having these people come along and they roll up their sleeves and they wash you even though they put themselves at risk? And that's what happened. And so they received this love and they said, geez, this is real. And then they ended up joining and joining and joining. And that's, that's how it worked. The people of the Roman Empire were forced to admire their works and dedication. And here's what they would say. Look how they love one another. Look how they love one another. And love for them wasn't emotional. It was rolling up your sleeves and and doing things like feeding people, like like yesterday at the banquet. Um, Yeah, when we think of our pandemic, you you can't describe the church as a whole because there, the church, there's in certain places, I'm sure that there are real loving things happening. But as a whole, the church doing well in terms of this pandemic, you know, we could have a discussion, couldn't we, about whether that's true or not. Um, what happened in the middle of the fourth century, the emperor, emperor Julian launched a campaign to institute pagan charities in an effort to match the Christians. He saw what the Christians were doing or had done in the century before, and he wanted to initiate a charity so that others would do the same. He complained in a letter to a high priest in Galatia that the pagans needed to equal the virtues of Christians because recent Christian growth was caused by their, and what he put it, moral character. That's why he sees the growth of Christianity, this moral character, even if pretended. So they said, even if they're pretending, uh, the fact that they're caring is having an impact and their benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead. Julian said a couple of things. Here's a quote from him. In the, he was an emperor from 361 to 360. Three, he says, I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, the impious Galileans, which was a, an, a, a derogatory term for Christians, Galileans, because the initial core of the church were Galileans. They were Jewish Christians from the northern part of Israel who were not the religious pure. They were the 
They lived among Gentiles, and so they weren't as religious as their southern neighbors, but, but they were the ones that, comp, that comprised the early, well, they were the ones who responded to Jesus. Um, it says, the impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. These impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. <laughs> she had to say, everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. <laughs> and he wasn't lying. They, just, they really didn't have the ability to get the people to demonstrate love in that way. It's interesting that, and so this is in the middle of the um, fourth century, and it was during that, about a decade later after um, Constantine made Christianity the religion of Rome. Um, what happened early in the, about 303 AD, the church was being persecuted and there were difficult things happening. A decade later, and 320 or so, uh, Constantine made Christianity the religion of Rome. And what ended up happening, interestingly, well, maybe not interestingly, depending on what you think. Um, um, important people began to flood the church. And now... You couldn't get a government position until you belonged to a Christian church. Then Christianity became the religion of Rome. And what ended up happening? Fairly quickly, theological debates surfaced and loving actions decreased. Loving actions were replaced by divisive heretical arguments. Does that sound familiar? Um, divisions increased. In 324, Constantine legislated to end, to put an end to all heretical sects that were non-Christian and ordered that their property be confiscated and turned over to Christians. Uh, the heretics were now enemies of the empire and were punished accordingly. For the first time, this was happened fairly quickly, Christians killed other Christians because of differences in their views of their faith. In about a generation, for 40 years, in the early 300s, they had been the persecuted church. And in about 40 years, they became the persecuting church. And that's, um, when the church ceases to be of one mind, they cease to be of one heart. That's what we find. That's what we find in Galatia. Here's what Paul says. This is Paul visited Galatia. We don't know exactly when. It could well have been 47 to 48 AD. And he wrote this letter, some think about a year later, about 48 and uh, when he shared the gospel and they responded, boy, it really exploded in acts of love. Then what ended up happening? Other individuals came who convinced the people to believe that, okay, Jesus loves you, but he'll love you even more if you keep the commandments the Jews have been keeping for thousands of years. And the people said, oh, okay. And so they went from having new covenant faith because Paul laid that foundation being drawn back 
to old covenant faith. And what ends up happening, well, let's read what happened. He says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. What ends up happening is somebody comes within the church, and again, these churches are not huge. Again, imagine back to the insula. You know, there's 50, 60 people, and what ends up happening, somebody in one of these house churches said, oh yeah, you know, Paul says that, but the way it really works is that God reserves his undiminished love for those who keep the commandments, which is not the gospel. Remember what we talked about, the gospel was seated with Christ in the heavenly places when we're dead in sin, when there's nothing we can do for ourselves. God reaches down and does for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's the gospel. And what ended up happening, this other version of, well, it's not really a gospel, but people started, okay, and that it, it, ended up throwing people into confusion, and it probably started with a few. But within a year, Paul writes the letter, and under the influence of old covenant-based destruction, the church is imploding. Listen to what Paul says. Um, As for those agitators, I wish that they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Obviously, they were preaching, well, to really be loved, you have to be circumcised. And Paul, you know, kind of makes a graphic picture here. Don't just stop, you know, there. Just, yeah, let's not get into that. Um, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature of the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Really kind of funny, you know, we think this is Halloween. You know, movies, scary movies, which I don't like, but they're on. I'm not saying they're bad. I just, I I have dreams about them. Anyway, don't get into that. Don't get into that. But the the Walking Dead, you know, that's is, you know, cannibalism and stuff like that. This this is like the Church of the Walking Dead. They're biting and devouring one another. It's a Christianized version of that, not literally, but the way they're treating one another. They're nipping at one another. And you know why that happened? They began to consume one another. It wasn't happening when they were under the understanding that the new covenant was in place. They were loving because this, being of one mind of the gospel, leads to this, to be loving. When they were pulled back under old covenant thinking, they started to compare themselves with one another, started to compete with one another. Who is the most virtuous? Well, you give this much, but I give that much. And before you know it, this church has gone from being loving to being a church that where they're competing with one another. They stop walking together because they stop sitting together. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? In order to stand together, we need to walk together. In order to walk together, we have to to keep sitting together, have to. Now, it might not affect us tomorrow. It might not affect us a week from now. But when we are careful 
to be clear about what the message is. When we root ourselves in the gospel, we protect our ability to be loving into the future. That's the way it goes, because to stand together, we've got to walk together. To walk together, we have to sit together. When they forfeited new covenant liberty, they forfeited new covenant love. It really does seem that the progression is this, liberty, then love. Paul says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity to serve the flesh. But he would have them use their liberty to serve one another. Here's the deal, though. You can't use what you don't have. That's why it starts with understanding what the gospel is, that you don't have to earn something with God. And when the roots of your faith go deeper into that, slowly but surely, you end up looking for somebody else to bless and love proceeds forth. We're going to do it. We're going to close the service with respect to um, our visualized part. We're going to do a little experiment, those of you who are here. I'm going to have us stand up and we're going to go into the A-frame. And I want you to grab a seat because that's probably about the size that these early courtyards, and we're not going to spend a long time there, but what I'm going to ask you to do, everybody stand, everybody stand up, go ahead, and we're going to, we're going to close the service, and um, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll close our video, and then we're going to go into that back room just for a couple of minutes, because that's what the early church would have felt like. I want you to grab a chair, pull it around, let's sit as close together as you're comfortable in light of the pandemic. Uh, let me pray for us, and that's what we're going to do, and we'll just spend a little bit of time back there. Father, thank you for the record of the early church. And we know that they were able to be of one heart because they were able to protect being of one mind. Thank you for their legacy. And would you continue to help us to use the freedom that we have because of the gospel to serve one another in love. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>